You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to the 10 a.m. crew. So you can, you can thank Travis Eads, who's uh, one of the pastors over at our Manhattan location for that very dramatic retelling <laughs> of the fiery furnace. I didn't even think King Nebuchadnezzar was that old, but I don't know. <laughs> so that's what Retold's about, and I'm opening up the series, starting with this story of the fiery furnace. And fiery furnace is a hard word to say, so if I mess that up, I apologize in advance. <laughs> Also saying Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I have to say that a lot. So if I, that's what happened, okay? You know who I'm talking about. So we're looking at these stories. We're looking at these stories that we've heard since we were young. Stories like Cain and Abel, David and Goliath. These are all like the fairy tales of the Bible. They're the stories that we tell our kids to inspire their faith. But can they inspire our faith? Where does this story about three men being thrown in a fire fit into our lives? What does this teach us about God? So you guys just shared stories about things you were made fun of when you were younger. So when I was younger, I was made fun of for being Christian. Let me backtrack a little. I'm gonna give you a background of my life. So I was born in Hong Kong, and I'm one of my dad's six kids. My dad is Hindu and my mother Catholic, but she only went to school not school, she only went to church on uh, Easter and Christmas, like probably half of us did when we were growing up. But I became a Christian when I was 12 years old, when I joined a prayer prayer group uh, full of um, pastor's kids and missionary's kids. So now you know why I got teased. To make things worse, I used to walk around with this giant teen study Bible. You know, the one with the colorful pages? Yeah, some of you guys know. And I wore a WWJD bracelet. Yeah, now you know, right? So I got, uh, kids at school gave me a hard time, and even my parents at home, they, um, they grounded me from church. Yeah, yeah, so I wasn't allowed to go to youth group. I could go to the movies until 1 a.m., but as long as I wasn't around church kids, I was fine. That's another sermon altogether, but... <laughs> That's what happened, and um, my youth pastor actually had to come and meet me at school at lunchtime to counsel me, because it was a really hard time for me. I couldn't talk to my closest friends. I had to write them letters. This was before email, otherwise life would have been much easier. But yeah, so she had to come at lunchtime, and it was really tough. I felt like I was being attacked from all fronts, at school and at home. I felt as though I was being persecuted and that I was a victim. So just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I had been thrown into a fiery furnace for what I believed in. And I believed that we as Christians were being persecuted daily and that we were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So have you been there? And the object of persecution, either by what you believed in or or ridiculed because of, of an opinion that you had? Or were you treated differently because of the way you dress or the way you look or even your gender? These three men were being persecuted because of what they believed in. An awful king threw these three men into a fiery furnace because their religion forbid them from bowing down to the statue that the king had built. So before we talk about this story in particular, 
Let me set the scene for you. Let's backtrack a little bit. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Israelites. And before being captured by the Babylonians, the Israelites were people that were trying to establish themselves religiously and politically. So religion and politics were very much intertwined at the time. And for the people of Israel, the city of Jerusalem was the center for them. It was very much a part of their identity, religiously and politically. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at that time, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and he took the people captive back to Babylon. Amongst those captured was Daniel, who's the author of our story, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem and capture of the first Jews is actually a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah, because the nation of Israel had sinned against God in many ways. So you know that God had made a promise to the Jews that if they lived by a moral standard set up by him, which we all know is the Ten Commandments, that he would give them the promised land. But if they didn't, then that would be taken from them. But they sinned in many ways, and amongst that, that sin, they fell into idolatry. And idolatry includes the worship of trees, rivers, hills, and stones. Any nature worship, worship of the sun, moon, and stars, and what's called hero worship, which is worship of ancestors and heroes. Now that might sound really foreign for, for us, but let me put this into perspective. Has anyone done yoga before? Yeah. So if you've ever done the sun salutation, which is a downward facing dog, and then you scoop up into the snake-like position, or if you've ever put a poster of um, your favorite artist on the wall, like Tupac or Biggie, or uh, I put up Backstreet Boys, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, then you'd be exiled from your land. That's pretty extreme. So anyway, because of their sin, they were taken captive to Babylon, which was the center of idolatry. I want you to remember this, that Babylon was considered one of the most wicked cities in the ancient world. That you've been exiled from your land to a city, I'm not, I can't even think of the American equivalent, maybe Vegas, or I think some people might even say New York City. <laughs> anyway, so in their time of exile, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were appointed to be part of the king's service by the chief of officials. Now the king had specified that the people at his service had to be of noble blood without any physical blemishes. They had to be smart and show aptitude for every type of learning. So after they were picked, their names were changed. They had Hebrew names before this, but now their names were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taught Babylonian. They were taught about the Babylonian culture, about their religion. So essentially, they were stripped of their identities as Jews and had to assume the identity of a Babylonian. So fast forward a little, and the king starts having crazy dreams, and in one of the, those dreams, um, he dreams that so everyone's worshiping him and bowing down to him, so he, that leads him to build this statue, which takes us to our fiery furnace story. And you know what happens next from the video, the very dramatic video, <laughs> that the king commands everyone to bow down and worship him. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to go, and their friends, the other wise men, report this to the king. The king gets furious and calls them forward and, so that he can throw them in the furnace. Now, let's pause. Up to this point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had had to compromise a lot as a means of survival. So had to, 
they had to compromise by changing their name, they had to compromise by assuming another culture, speaking another language, um, but what they were uncompromising was, with was in their beliefs. So being uncompromising, they had to refuse to worship this false idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had built, even knowing that they would face death. So I don't know about you guys. If I was about to face death like that, I might have just faked it. You know, it's not really in your heart if you're not really, if you're, if you're not worshiping, you know, if, if it's not really in your heart, you could just fake it. In fact, they might have even gotten away with it if Shadrach, Meshach, if the wise men hadn't ratted them out. You see, I told you I was gonna mix up those names. Yeah, they might have gotten away with it. But the thing is, these men, they already knew the outcome of idol worship. They already knew that in the past, their land would be taken from them, their city would be destroyed, and that they would be held captive. So they weren't about to spend any time worshiping and getting into the culture of worship, of idol worship by the Babylonians. They didn't want to cross a gray area of fake worshiping. So they refused. When the king brought them forward, they didn't even try to explain themselves. They didn't try to reason with the king. They say, if we are thrown in this furnace, the God we serve is able to and he will deliver us. And now listen carefully. If he does not, we will not serve your God or worship the image you set up. If he does not. So they were willing to face death even knowing that there was a possibility that God might not deliver them. So after being thrown in, you remember the king sees four figures instead of three, and one of those figures, he says, looks like an angel. Now in some versions of the Bible, it actually says that that figure looks like the son of the gods. Now the Babylonians' understanding of the gods was that they didn't live amongst humans. They didn't live among the people. So for this king to say specifically that that fourth figure look like a son of the gods is very peculiar. It's very unusual and it's worth noting. So remember that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they walk out, their clothes still intact, not a hair on their head is singed, and they didn't even smell a fire. And that's the end of our story. So looking back at the story that we know so well and we've heard several times before, what are we supposed to learn from this? What is God teaching us in this? Quite simply, we can conclude that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered religious persecution by a power-tripping King Nebuchadnezzar and his people. Yeah, you knew, right? <laughs> what we can take from this is that in life, we, may, we might face persecution for what we believe in as Christians. We might not always face life or death situations like these three men did, but this is meant to give us encouragement that we must stand firm in our faith. So I remember to being told when I was a teen and going through my persecution that I was, I was to be encouraged by this story. Time and time again, I was told that to have faith like these three did when facing persecution. As long as I was fervent in prayer and did all the right things, that I would be fine, that I would be rescued from the fiery furnace. So I could end this sermon now and tell you, have faith like these three. Be encouraged. Whether you're facing hardship or persecution, stand firm, be faithful. Don't compromise and be like everybody else, but stand firm and you will be saved from the fire. Drop mic. <laughs> no.
because I can't actually drop this mic. I'd have to rip it from my face. But I'm not, right? It's too easy to think that we are always the victim, that we are always the object of persecution. It's too easy to think that we were like the Israelites that constantly faced oppression and faced persecution. What happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they were ratted out by their friends for not wanting to obey a ridiculous law. King Nebuchadnezzar and the other wise men were so consumed by what was right and what was lawful that they stopped seeing them as humans. Their lives were deemed worthless because they were breaking the law, which was to worship this statue. We, as Christians today, do not experience this level of persecution, not in America at least. We as the church are guilty of being the persecutor just as much as we are victims of persecution. We think that we are under attack when we are forced to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. We get offended when Starbucks dons ombre red cups instead of red cups with reindeers and Santa hats or bells from that picture. No, it's, what is it, Christmas ornaments. That's not persecution, guys. Could it be that we're actually a lot more like the men that ratted out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is that who we are in the story? Or worse, could it be that we've become so obsessed with what's right and withholding power that we're more like King Nebuchadnezzar? Have we been so forceful of our ideals on other people that if they fall outside of that, they can't participate in society? So what are we supposed to do with this story? Who are the real Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Just three weeks ago, two black men were killed by police officers, one a day after another. We criminalized one because he was selling CDs illegally on the street, and he was holding a, concealing a weapon illegally. In our eyes, that wasn't ideal. That wasn't lawful. But did that warrant death? The other was shot in front of his girlfriend and her four-year-old daughter. We dug up his past. We found reasons for him to be guilty. Like King Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the wise men, we became consumed with how he could have broken the law. We didn't see that this man had his own family. We didn't see him as a child of God. In June last year, a black teenage girl was arrested leaving a pool party. She wasn't just arrested. She was shoved to the ground, face down. In October last year, a female high school student was arrested for disrupting the classroom. Her body literally dragged across the classroom floor. These arrests were made for ridiculous reasons. Did their behavior really warrant us criminalizing them? The news and popular media all paint this picture of drugs and crime consuming black kids. And we've allowed that image to taint how we view them. We don't expose ourselves to the various stories of the black youth experience. We've differentiated them from other teens of other races or cultures, even if they might dress the same or look the same or even if they listen to the same music. But because they're black, we see them as a threat. We've 
stripped them of their identity, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we gave them one of our own. We criminalize them. We tense up when we have to share a subway car with them. We walk across the street to avoid the bodega where they all congregate. We did this. We stopped seeing them as human. Even in our public schools, the place that is supposed to offer them opportunity for growth, and we still reduce them. We dress their schools in high fences and sometimes barbed wire. We make them walk through metal detectors, assuming that someone's carrying something contraband. And according to the U.S. Department of Education, we suspend them three and a half times more than their white counterparts. And if they're a black female student, they're suspended or expelled six times more. Just take a moment to imagine how this must feel. Don and Lieberman, of the, ex the executive director of the New York City Civil Liberties Union, see, that was hard to say as well. <laughs> Making students have to go through metal detectors to go to school sends a terrible message to students about where they are headed and how they are viewed. Without having heard their story, we've already set out their path. I didn't know this either until I moved to New York. It wasn't until I met my husband, who is black and from East New York, that I realized that I had the same presumptions about people of color here in the United States. It wasn't until I'd heard my husband's story that I realized that I needed to make space to hear the stories of all people of color and their experiences in the context of America. My husband, Mike, he grew up in the projects. He went to one of these schools where you had to walk through metal detectors. In fact, his bag was scanned through an x-ray machine as well. He decided he wasn't about that life, so he refused to touch drugs, not even smoke a joint. To this day, he's never smoked a cigarette. He didn't even touch alcohol until he was of legal age. He didn't want to risk getting caught up in a lifestyle that might compromise his chance to graduate high school or go to college. Now, before you applaud him and say that he stood out and fought hard to set himself apart from his peers, I want you to think about that moment when you had your first cigarette or when you had your first sip of alcohol. Were you thinking, I might get addicted because of this? Or, this might affect my ability to graduate. No, I bet that's, what, that's not what you were thinking. But because of the life that was expected of Mike, based on what we had reduced him to in society, he had to make a conscious choice to distance himself from anything negative. It's normal for teens to experiment, but because he was black, his presumed future had already been written out for him, and he had to make a decision, a different choice, or risk his future. Talk about pressure, guys. The, realiza the realization of this left me really discouraged, but fortunately, I'm a dreamer and an optimist. I search for hope. I read something that so poetically reminded me of the hope that we have in Jesus. I came across a blog post by Lisa Sharon Harper, whom you just heard about from Jen. She's an activist and a faith leader, and she talks about what went on when Genesis 1 was written. 
The timing was perfect because I was just listening to Jen's sermon on Genesis and um, because we were going through the creation story and kids stuff as well. So actually, Lisa Sharon Harper has, has written a, an entire book about, the Genes- about Genesis called The Very Good Gospel, and it's definitely worth a read. Anyway, so in her blog post, she concludes that Genesis was written in the company of priests who had been held captive in exile in Babylon those last 70 years when our story took place. And they were leaving Pab- Babylon, returning to their homeland. In claiming back the identity of the people of Israel, the priests possibly used Genesis to provide commentary on the state of the people. So the darkness that the priests write of translates as destruction, misery, death, and sorrow, which is likely what the people of Israel were feeling in the time of exile. In Genesis 1, God confronts the darkness and says, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and this is what she goes on to say. The priests who penned Genesis 1 did not promise a world without pain. When God created paradise in their retelling, God did not obliterate the darkness or the deep. God intervened and placed boundaries on it. Because God intervenes, I hope. Jesus came to this earth just like one of our black and brown children, not like us. Jesus came into this world like the marginalized, the poor, the vulnerable. He came homeless. He came as a refugee and an immigrant. He took up residence. He came to bring us hope. If we believe in Jesus, we must believe that oppression, even generations later, still exists that our most vulnerable are still being marginalized. They are the ones being persecuted. Jackie Lewis, a pastor at Middle Collegiate Church says, to believe in that one is to believe that everywhere there is oppression, love must take up residence. To believe in that one is to believe in the value of the wretched of the earth. Love must take up residence. Our church believes in the just and generous expression of the Christian faith. So how can we do that in light of this? We know that social justice issues are the center of the gospel and the life and ministry of Jesus. He fed the hungry. He defended the oppressed. He stood up for women's rights. In him, we have hope. But he left us the responsibility to live out his gospel. He, took, he asked us to take care of not just the spiritual needs of humanity, but the physical needs, the psychological needs, the mental needs, and the emotional needs as well. This is our responsibility towards those who have been pushed out and mar- marginalized. Even if it means that we have to give up something that we're holding on to, we must bring them back into the center. We need to aid in bringing them back and bringing them hope. Because God intervened, we must intervene. We must hear the stories of our black and brown youth. We need to be be involved in restoring relationships between families and in communities. We need to not be so quick in seeking retributive justice, but instead advocate for restorative justice and break this school to prison pipeline. They are the ones being persecuted. So how can we begin 
to do such a daunting task. I think that as a church, we've done a great job in setting ourselves apart by being diverse and inclusive in our services. We must continue to set ourselves apart by building relationships with people who look different from us, inviting them over for dinner and doing life with them. We need to also have conversations, the ones that make us uncomfortable. We can't walk around colorblind anymore because we don't live in a post-racial world. We need to have conversations about why is this happening? How does this affect me? And as Jackie says, ask, how does this affect my soul? How does my faith in God relate to these issues? How can I be a healer? Because if you don't know how a person of color felt when these two men were shot, if you don't know how they felt when these teenage girls were arrested, if you didn't ask them how they felt about it, how can you be their advocate? How can you advocate for them if you haven't heard their story? We can't be part of a movement that liberates if we aren't having relationships with people of color, let alone youth of color. We must be willing to take a stand for these kids. Be willing to be in the fire with them, just as Jesus was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if that means that we're going against the grain when we support the Black Lives Matter movement, we must do so in order to stand with our black community. I want to end this sermon with a quote from Jackie Lewis. God's people are called to be in the business of liberation. And with that work of liberation, our names have changed. We become repairers of broken places and restorers of streets to live in. We must take the kind of worship God desires out of our sanctuary doors and into the streets. We can do this in three ways, with peaceful protesting, with courageous conversations, and with our eyes on the prize of racial reconciliation. So the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego isn't just about faith. It's about taking a stand and making a difference in the lives of others. It's about standing in the fire with those who have been oppressed, just as the Son of God did. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the hope we have in you. Show us compassion and the ability to see everyone in your eyes. Remind us to see one another as humans. Soften our hearts so we aren't so quick to judge. Give us the strength and the humility to make space for peace so that we can hear the stories of the people in our black community. Use us to be vehicles of, of light. Use us to be vehicles of peace and reconciliation. Draw us deeper to love, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.